Just before I came in here, one of my dear colleagues, who I will not name, (laughs) told me that they expected magnificence from me. And another one encouraged me to sparkle. And um, I don't know if I've ever sparkled uh, in this situation. And I, I know for certain I've never achieved magnificence, but... I'm hearing it as a vote of confidence that these things might actually be possible at some point. And uh, so I'm, I'm letting it land that way rather than feeling any pressure <laughs> to perform <laughs> or present anything uh, you know, exceptional. So good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma farers, oh, children of the noble ones and most magnificent assembly of medium-sized beings. I have heard that on one occasion, the Buddha was staying in Savati, where he had taken up residence for the annual rains retreat in the Jetavana, Jetta's Grove, outside the city walls. And in those days, during the month or two before the rains retreat, those uh, disciples of the Buddhas who were able to would make their way to where he was residing in order to receive uh, direct instructions from him. And they would then disperse to various uh, monasteries and forest dwellings and and different locations where they would then take up uh, the reins and spend that period in one place. And that was the custom then, is still the custom now in this tradition for those who have uh, ordained as alms mendicants. And so at this time, there was a group of 500 bhikkhus. Now often the word 500, that number is used to mean a lot or a large group, but maybe it was 500. And they made their way to Savati and they entered the Jetavana and uh, went to pay their respects and uh, visit the Buddha, and after bowing down in respect, they sat off to one side as was customary. And then they each received instructions uh, that were suitable to their individual inclinations and temperaments. And so those of a lustful temperament were given um, the contemplation of the 32 parts of the body. Those of a hating temperament were given the fourfold, fourfold meditation that begins with metta, loving-kindness, so meditation on the Brahma-viharas. Those of a deluded temperament or disposition were taught the meditation consisting of maranasati, or mindfulness of death. Those inclined to speculative thinking were taught mindfulness of breathing. Those of a faithful temperament were taught to practice recollection of the qualities of the enlightened ones. And those inclined to investigation were instructed to contemplate the four great elements. Kaya, nupasana, mindfulness of the body with a focus on the four elements. And so after each of these bhikkhus had received instructions, they uh, left that area and were wandered in search of a suitable place to um, spend the rains retreat. And they wanted to... um, spend it in intensive meditation, which was often the uh, case for uh, the bhikkhus at that time. It was a, they uh, took that as a period uh, to stay in one place and really dive into um, 
meditation. And, and this retreat actually is based on that annual three-month period, and not at the rains time exactly, but uh, it's, it's carrying that tradition forth for us. And so in the course of their wandering, they came to a place where there was a beautiful hill, and it was near the foothills of the, uh, the foothills of the great Himalayas. So they had wandered north from Savati, and the hill appeared to them. It had the form and the, the beauty of a glittering quartz crystal, and it was surrounded by a cool, dense forest glade, and nearby there was a stretch of uh, a strand that uh, was level and even, and uh, it seemed to them it was like a pearl net or a silvery sheet. And then close by, there was a spring of clean, cool water, clear and, and uh, healthy to drink. And they, they felt captivated by the sight of the beauty of this place and the suitability of it. And they noticed nearby there were some small villages and a larger market town that would be a good place to go for alms round because that's the tradition to uh, go wander through the, the town and receive offerings from those who, who wish to offer. And so they uh, spent the first night in the, in, on, on the edge of the forest there, and the next morning they went into the town for alms. And uh, the people living there were really happy to see them. They were delighted that they had come because it was rare for a group like that to show up in, in their area. And when they heard that they wanted to spend the rains nearby, they were quite uh, quite pleased at the prospect that they would have this uh, you know meditation retreat going on nearby. Their hearts leapt up uh, with the interest into supporting them, and so they offered them alms on that occasion, invited them to stay, uh, said, "We will support you." They even offered to build each one of them a little hut, a meditation hut. Uh, near the grove on this beautiful sandy stretch that they had found so that they could spend their days and nights in seclusion and meditation there under the boughs of the the beautiful trees of the forest. And so an agreement was made and the the devotees built the little huts and they furnished each of them with um, a wooden cot and a stool and some pots for holding water, for drinking and bathing and uh, so forth. And so they settled in contentedly and um, felt very happy there. And then each one of them chose one of the beautiful trees to meditate under because that was the custom to sit at the roots of trees, sit at the base of trees. Now it happened that these trees, which were ancient and beautiful, they formed the the kind of foundation or the base for um, the the celestial abodes of certain kind of forest devas that lived there. And they each had a, had a, um, a celestial mansion, you could say, uh, up at the top of these trees. And, um, and so these devas, out of respect for these meditating bhikkhus, they stood aside. They didn't like to hover over them because they respected their virtue and, and their determination to practice meditation. And they, it felt disrespectful to them to hover above them. And so they, they moved aside, thinking that it would just be for you know, a day or two. But they didn't leave. And these forest devas felt you know, like they'd been kicked out of their homes by, by a visiting uh, army or something, or officials of a royal entourage who'd just taken over their homes. And so they, um, they kind of 
kept wondering what's when will they leave and then they they talked about it the, these dispossessed devas talked among themselves as devas will do and um, they decided that they had to do something about the situation and they needed to to scare them these bhikkhus away uh, that it wasn't going to be be a workable situation and so they decided that they would make some dreadful noises and create awful visions and create horrible smells and and so they um, they materialized all these kinds of things and afflicted the bhikkhus in a systematic way. And uh, these uh, meditating bhikkhus grew pale, they couldn't concentrate, and the devas continued to harass them, and then they just even lost their basic mindfulness. Uh, their minds became smothered by the oppressing visions, the dreadful sounds, the tragic smells. But they didn't say anything to each other. You know, They didn't want to appear like, well, like I'm having a hard time here. <laughs> but then one day, as was their custom periodically, they gathered together and they went to pay their respects to the senior elder among them. And he spoke to them and he said, friends, when you first entered into this wood, you appeared healthy. Your features were bright and your faculties were clear, but now you are lean and pale. What does not suit you here? And one bhikkhu spoke and said, At night I saw such dreadful sights, heard such horrible sounds, and smelled such terrible smells, and my mind was afflicted and I could not concentrate. And then each of them recounted their own experience of this. And uh, the elder spoke again. He said, Let us go, brethren, to the Blessed One and place our problem before him, for I too have been afflicted in just the same way. There are two times for the rains retreat, and this is true still to this day. There's the first rains and the second rains, and uh, it accommodates the circumstances because often one cannot find a suitable place by the time of the first one. And these are based on on the full moons uh, of July, but you can do the full moon of August. And so they said there are two times. And though we will be breaking the early rains, by leaving this place, we can always undertake the second, the later rains after we meet with the Buddha. And so they said, yeah, okay, we got to, this is a good idea. And they left and by stages made their way back to Savati. They went to the Buddha, again, bowing down, sitting to one side. And the Buddha spoke and he said, bhikkhus, a training rule has been made by me saying that no one is to go wandering about during the rains. Why are you wandering? And so they told him about their situation and how bad off it had been, how bad off things had been there. And they said, help us find some other place to go. And so the Buddha having this magnificent vision, wide and broad and deep vision, surveyed all of India and he couldn't find any other place for them to practice where they would actually be able to achieve depth of realization and final liberation. And so he said, bhikkhus, return to the same spot. It is only by striving there that you will realize the destruction of the inner taints. Fear not. If you want to be free from the harassment caused by these deities, learn this sutta. It will be a theme for meditation as well as a formula for protection. And then the Buddha taught them and recited for them the Karaniya Metta Sutta the discourse on kindness, which is to be done. And they memorized the verses there in his presence. And then they returned back to this forest glade. 
And they approached it reciting the words of the Metta Sutta, as we do, some of us in the evenings, and meditating also on the, the meaning there, cultivating the quality of metta. And the hearts of the devas were charged with delight and warm feelings of goodwill when this happened. And so they, they are able to take human form and they materialized in human form and received them eagerly and conducted them each to their own hut, and, um, you know, caused... Um, food and water to appear magically. And, and then they resumed their, their nor- normal, very fine material form and uh, invited the bhikkhus to practice there, uh, made them feel welcome. And they, um, they just took care of the place for the rest of the rains and, uh, and dwelling peacefully under the care of these kindly now kindly, forest devas, the bhikkhus applied themselves with diligence and balanced effort, not too little, not too much. And by the end of the rains, each of the 500 bhikkhus had become a fully enlightened being, an arahant. And indeed, it is said that such is the power intrinsic in the metta sutta, that whoever with firm faith recites these verses, invoking the protection of the devas, and meditating on kindness both safeguards themselves and protects those around and nearby and will make spiritual progress that can be verified. Magnificent? Sparkly? (laughs) Okay, there's still time. And, you know, there's other talks. These are the words of the Buddha in the Samyutta Nikaya. Therefore, you should train yourselves thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by metta, by loving kindness. We will make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, steady and consolidate it, exercise ourselves in it, and fully perfect it. Thus should you train yourselves. So this... This um, instruction points to a couple of things. It points to the power of metta as a, a means to concentrate and develop uh, stability of mind, samadhi. But it also this idea there of making it our vehicle. I love that. We can let our awareness, let our insight practice ride on the vehicle of kindness. And so we bring these things together, awareness and kindness. Some of you may know uh, Caroline Jones, who's the resident teacher at the Forest Refuge. Some of you may have practiced there with her. And at one time, I remember some years ago, I was teaching with her, and she defined metta as kindness with awareness, which I thought was really a a beautiful... um, definition of metta because it it has this quality of kindness of goodwill but it's infused with awareness it's not that discernment is thrown out actually it's it's woven into it clear seeing awareness and uh, and so then i decided i would elaborate that a little bit or i didn't decide to it just happened so i, I said well it's awareness with kindness within kindness and kindness within awareness this 
this weaving together of these two qualities there. And it feels to me that there's a great uh, power and potential when these two come together. And I've seen this in my own uh, practice. And so some of us have been chanting the same metta sutta. It's the same one they chanted. And this is one in the evenings for the chanting. And uh, we're learning it in Pali and English. And tonight, some of us are going to not look at the sheets. <laughs> right? Yes. Um, but this, this sutta, this um, short, really short sutta, this short teaching has been uh, described by one teacher as a jewel sparkling softly but compellingly through the centuries. I like that sense of the soft sparkle, but having it carry on through over many, many years. And I think it's probably memorized more frequently, chanted more often than anything else uh, that um, the Buddha taught. The Satipatthana Sutta is also very highly revered and chanted, but I think the Metta Sutta is probably the most frequently chanted. And right now, in all kinds of places all over the world, someone is chanting it. And when we chant it later tonight, we will be chanting along with others. And they're also practicing metta now, and they're sending it to all beings, and that includes all of us. So open your hearts and put your radar out to let some of that come in, because they're offering it freely. So there's a lot to this short discourse, actually. And so I'm going to start uh, offering some reflections on the teachings that we find there. And and I'm sure I'll only get partway through tonight, um, especially since I told the story of of when it was taught, first taught. And so we'll see how far I get, and then I'll I'll continue for the next talk or two or so. So... um, the sutta, as, as you, those of you who've, who've seen it, uh, has kind of this three-part form. It's, and in a way, it's kind of like a poem. It's in verse form. And there's uh, some useful, there are some useful reflections uh, that come right at the very beginning. So I'm, I'm going to chant these in English, and I will ask you not to chant, I think, um, in support of anyone in the room who's not comfortable being in the room when, when our voices are, are when we're, we're chanting and, and uh, you know, for health reasons or other reasons. So you can chant silently inside. Um, and we'll do it later. So the first lines of the uh, sutta in English go like this. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. So there are different uh, translations of this, but the word in Pali, the first word of this sutta is karaniya. And that um, means a thing to be done. It's related to doing something. Um, this case, it says, uh, this is one, what should be done by one who knows the path of peace. 
Sometimes it's translated one who reaches towards the path of peace or one who would be interested in gaining a path to peace, gaining peacefulness. Um, But the part that I want to focus on here a little bit is the the sense here that um, there is a skill of goodness. There is a skill involved in goodness. That it's something that one would develop and train. And of course, we could say, and and there's reality to the fact that that goodness is a somewhat subjective uh, discernment. We might not all agree on exactly what goodness is. But in this context, I think we would all be able to agree that it's something that is life-affirming, onward leading in the direction of ease, happiness, well-being for ourselves and others. And in the context of our practice, I think that's something we would say, okay, yeah, we can, we'll arrive there, goodness, as seen as that. The Pali word is kusala. I think we don't always think of, of goodness as a skill that we would develop, really. Sometimes we think it's either something we we have or someone has or doesn't have or has some amount of or something like that. And there is also this sense that that skill of goodness is directly related to uh, a path to peace. That it's, it's uh, woven into that movement towards peacefulness. And so, as I said, uh, the word goodness, kusala, in this place, it's karaniyam atta kusalena, kusalena. Uh, that's a particular form of that word. Um, is translated here as goodness, sometimes wholesomeness or skillfulness. And there's a reference to um, this in a short uh, passage in the Dhammapada in the verse 183, where the Buddha summarizes um, the teaching of the Buddha, in, of all Buddhas, in, in these three short lines. And I like to sometimes share the Pali because it's... Um, It's a cool language. And it only exists as a vehicle for these uh, teachings. It's, we have them because of, they've been carried forward in this language. And I think there's a power to just the sound of it and the feel of it in one's mouth, perhaps, and the vibration of it in one's body. Saba papasa akaranang kusalasa upasampada sachita pariyodapana Eta buddhana sasanam. To avoid the harmful, to cultivate goodness, to purify one's mind. This is the teaching of all Buddhas. Summarized all, all teaching to these three things. Cultivate what is good, refrain from that which is, causes harm, and purify the mind. And we've been talking about this sense of purification of the mind in different ways. A lot of what Carol spoke about last night had to do with this, this sense of purification. At least I think that was part of it. This um, word upasampada literally means gathering or to draw something near to oneself. And this is the um, 
this is is there with the kusala. So it's it's the sense of one gathers goodness to oneself, like gathering flowers or something beautiful, gathering something good and beautiful and drawing it near. Right? So uh, a beautiful sense there that there is goodness that can be gathered and brought into one's mind and heart. So there's this sense here that whether or not we find a path to peace, experience peacefulness, is not just an accident or good luck, but actually involves training in all kinds of ways, developing skills, and in this line, developing the skill of goodness. So we gain understanding through our intentions and our own efforts. The teacher Ayakema, there's a book that was put together based on a number of talks that she gave, and it's called A Path to Peace. And the the majority of the first part, more than half of the book, is uh, she goes through the first part of the Metta Sutta in, in quite some detail and explores these different uh, uh, instructions and uh, reflections of the Buddha. It's quite interesting. And then uh, the last part of the book are a series of guided meditations um, that are quite beautiful. I've I've practiced some of those, um, hearing her voice on a on a recording. And she said this: "Peacefulness is a state of inner being which is ultimately independent of outer conditions, and which we create within ourselves through our ability of wholesomeness, the ability of a loving heart." And the ability to recognize that the world out there is not going to do it for us. We have to do it for ourselves. So there might be all kinds of ways we could think about uh, cultivating goodness, practicing the skill of goodness. A simple way is in terms of our conduct, our sila, our intention, to live uh, carefully, to limit the harm we do through our actions and words, the way we conduct our lives. And this is a no small thing. I hope you have a sense for that and reflect on it sometimes, the beauty and power of this intention to live carefully, as harmlessly as possible. We cannot live completely harmlessly. It's not possible. But we have this intention to not uh, add to the suffering of the world through our actions and speech. And it's such a gift. We give the gift of fearlessness to others. So bring that to mind at times when you're having a, having, having a hard time struggling with your meditation. This practice is very broad, and this is one part of it. And, and in terms of looking at this specifically, in terms of this movement towards peace, towards peacefulness, we can see how it directly informs that because the heart and mind can rest at ease, free of remorse. And this supports calm tranquility, settling into the meditation. And these are not only aspects of peacefulness, but they are direct supports for our practice.
and the practice of, of giving, of generosity, dana parami, can also be seen as a, a skill of goodness, something that we can cultivate, develop. And it brings peacefulness, supports our movement towards peace. Giving can erode our self-cherishing attitudes and tendencies. And it's a direct counter to grasping and clinging and holding in the mind and heart. And by giving, we gather goodness. So by giving, we also receive in this way. I think we often tend to see Donna and Sila as kind of preliminary or as, as you know, important, but, but the real deal is the, the meditation. We tend to focus on that a lot more. We see these as supports or an aid to meditation, but maybe we don't undertake them in quite the same way as a practice in quite the same way. We may to some extent, but I think we tend to focus on on the uh, bhavana, the meditative practices a little more. And I think this is a mistake and is a, a narrow and, and limiting view. In my experience, the dana and sila, our understanding of this is constantly being refined as we walk this path. I think uh, these understandings are woven into the practice at every stage and every step. A few years ago, I interviewed um, a teacher who's, for whom I have great respect and affection and owe a, a debt of gratitude to, who happens to be sitting here with us tonight. And this is um, a quotation from that interview. Uh, this teacher was actually reclining at the time. So wisdom can arise from the reclining posture. So this is from uh, the great, magnificent, and sparkling Carol Wilson. (laughs) Donna and Sila are not in any way merely preliminary practices. They are a way of living one's life, of purifying the mind stream. The more I practice, the more I see the subtlety of the way they inform my life. They are intrinsic to awakening. If one were just to practice dana and sila with the intention to really watch the mind and heart, one would discover that they are in and of themselves liberation practices. It's all about purification. The pure mind sees Nibbana. That's really good. It's still good, Carol. (laughs) Years later, I'm very impressed. So this, this takes us back to the teaching of all the Buddhas, this sense of practicing the good, refraining from harm, and purifying the mind. And so I think always good to broaden the scope of what we see as practice. Make it as wide. If there's something that seems to be outside of it, widen your arms even wider and get it in there. So the next few lines I'll move on in this teaching. They continue to 
maybe address the skill of goodness in terms of our conduct. But then they um, also there's reflections on various um, qualities and attitudes that are important in this uh, movement towards peacefulness as we walk the path to peace. So again, I'll chant. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. So this uh, section really is a lot around our uh, conduct and how we live, living carefully, ethically, in ways that bear in mind that all things are connected, that we are connected to all of life, we're not separate from any of it, and that all things do come at a cost. And so in many ways you could say that this path and the practice is the process of living a life that is more and more infused with love and awareness, love and wisdom. And this goes back to the definition of metta as kindness with awareness. And we bring care to how we live because we know that it really matters. And the choices we make do matter. And this part of the sutta, some of the language there is specifically, I think, aimed by the Buddha at the uh, ordained sangha who live as alms mendicants. And so an alms mendicant is one who's, who goes, walks for alms. So in that tradition, one walks with a bowl once a day and food is put into that bowl. Often in a monastery, of course, meals are sometimes prepared, but food is, is received that way. And um, you, you can't ask for anything. You can't go up to someone's house. You can wait in the road and if you're seen and someone feels like it, they can come out and put something into your bowl. And there are ways that one conducts oneself. One is, is um, you know, waits patiently, mindfully, with a heart of metta for those who might offer and for all beings. That's part of how one holds the attitude when going on alms round. It's quite a powerful practice. And so there's uh, this uh, admonition to be humble and not conceited and contented and easily satisfied, to be unburdened with excessive duties, taking care in the responsibilities that one takes on, and, and not taking the duties that one does have as a burden, holding them in a way that they are not burdensome. frugal, not wasteful, not demanding. And there's another side to this also that's in the terrain of 
uh, gratitude, gratitude and appreciation for what is offered and for what we, the goodness that comes to us and the blessings that are there in our lives. At one period in my uh, time in Burma, I was living in the robes of a, a bhikkhu and I would go on alms round every day. And, and one day, usually the, I went with a group and we would be given various things and we would bring them back to the, to the meditation center monastery and, and we'd turn them into the kitchen and then they would be incorporated with food that was offered to everyone who was there. Um, but there's also a practice, it's, called a, it's, it's one of what are called dutanga practices. It's a kind of um, a little more ascetic practice that is, is allowable. You can't get ex- as extreme as the Buddha got. He, he took it a little farther than is allowed these days by the rule. But you can determine to live only on alms food, eating once a day. And so I decided... Uh, if I got anything more than just rice uh, this this day, this one day before I went, I would begin eating only the alms food that was offered directly to me. Um, and I would eat just once a day. And so I got rice and a very tiny, thin slice of papaya. And so I'd made that determination. And so I started eating only alms food at that time. And and so then I was going by myself. It was more the practice at that time and receiving what was offered. And, and some days I only had rice and some days I had huge abundance of offerings and everything in between. And there was one woman who lived in a very small um, bamboo hut, which are very common in poor villages, these very small huts. And uh, usually up a little bit on stilts because it gets very wet during the rainy season. And she was living by herself and was very poor. And sometimes she had a spoonful of rice for me or, or one little thing. And one day when I went by, um, and she always, she offered with such care, which is not always the case, but she would come out and, and it's, it's the custom there that people will, will they'll go down on, in the dirt because <laughs> it's not paved and, and bow to you when you're wearing the robes. And that's very humbling to feel, um, especially if, if you don't come from that culture. You know, and there's the realization that this person who, who would do that, they're not bowing to, they were never bowing to me, they were bowing to the robes and what that represented and, and bowing to their own faith in the triple gem. But still, she would, people would do this. <laughs> and she would, this one day she bowed and then very carefully offered me a flower, just one flower. There was another uh, household that I went by and um, there was a young woman who would come out. It was a, a little compound with a yard and a fence and, and you can't go inside, but you can wait there. And, and she would come out very slowly. Um, she didn't look well and she would offer alms. And over time, over many months, she... Uh, would come out um, more slowly and then with assistance to walk because it was getting harder and harder. And, and at one point, they, they, may, they told me to come into the yard. And so if you're invited, you can go in. And so then I would go uh, up closer to the house so that it was too hard for her to come out because she was ill. And um, 
And at one point she had to offer the alms from a chair, which they would never, people wouldn't do that. It would be seen as disrespectful. So I had to get down low so that she could do it and, and, and accommodate that and uh, receive the alms. And then um, one day as I was passing by, she wasn't there and they didn't have me come in. And, and I heard from one of my um, fellow monks who knew the family that she had passed away. But she had made this offering. Uh, brings emotion to think of it. Until she just couldn't. You know, cultivating this skill of goodness in that way. This was the heart of her practice, was this offering and the... Uh, cultivation of of faith and um, yeah the beauty of giving very powerful to receive in in that way to wear the robes carefully respectfully to be worthy of that you know and if we take the time to look there we have so many blessings here in the States, we take so much for granted. We've had it so easy here. Clean water flows out of these taps all over this compound. You can drink that. We flush our toilets with water you can drink. That's kind of unbelievable. A lot of people don't have that. Nothing. They don't even have dirty water to drink. And if they do, they have to go far away to get it. You know, if we, it's a beautiful practice. I have a friend, colleague, who uh, she and, and a friend of hers, they, they, they correspond, um, I don't know, through some, uh, probably not email that's out of date, but some, uh, some way they, they connect daily and, and uh, reflect on uh, five things they're grateful for. They've been doing it for a long time. I don't think they've run out of things. You know, if you start thinking about it, things just come like, you know, indoor plumbing. We have a lot of gratitude for indoor plumbing. <laughs> this time of year, we have heat. We have such beauty all around us. We're surrounded. We walk in beauty here in these beautiful woods, supported by that and by all of the animals and the beings who who we share this place with. So many things. And this, this part of the sutta, there's this attention, uh, attention placed on living simply and carefully and uh, how we use the, the things that we do have, the resources that we are offered and care with that. You know, this is important for us. This is critical in our lives, you know. When we fill up the gas tank on our car, do we think about the other end of that hose? Where is that? You know, we don't have to look. Do we just complain about how much it costs, how expensive it's gotten? You know, we're a, we're kind of a voracious species <laughs> as humans. We want all the best stuff. We don't leave a lot left for other beings. You know, and our economic system's based on 
continual growth of, as if that were somehow sustainable? It seems so obvious that can't work in the long run. Resources are, are not infinite, they're finite. And we foul the air and the water and turn the landscape into a desert. You know, if some other, if turkeys or squirrels were doing this, we would rub them out. We make some kind of exception for ourselves as though somehow we're exempt from taking care. Do we ask ourselves in any moment, what do I need right now to feel sufficient and content? Because there's so much out there that's convincing us that we're always in this state of lack, that we need more and more and more. It's a lot of what Monica was talking about and, and uh, Dawn in her talk on renunciation, you know. The sense, the, the media is persuading us that we're living in a state of inner lack, that there's always something missing, something we need. Contentment's really hard to find. It seems like something that's maybe once in a while we accidentally stumble on it or else it's, it's out of reach or around the corner somewhere. We see it dependent on having our momentary desires met, certain conditions being there so that contentment might be found. And we have to constantly be looking and rearranging conditions. I'll be content once this, once I get that the right job, the right partner, the right place to live, whatever it is, some particular set of goals. And and then if we accidentally stumble on it, how long does it last? With, With this practice, with mindfulness practice, there's this radical idea that contentment might be found by actually connecting to the present moment that we might be able to find it there. Independent of what's going on, at least to a great extent. I remember once I, when I was sitting the, my first three-month retreat here, and I was very new to practice. And I remember sitting in the dining room, just sitting quietly gazing out and I was I was struck in a profound way by how contented I felt I was just so content and there was I was just sitting there (laughs) I wasn't in some blissful deep state of concentration I was just being not doing anything. I was just being a living being and there was this contentment. And I also remember on that retreat that I was, I was so, I just loved being able to live as carefully as I was living because I didn't live that carefully in my, in my life outside of retreat and maybe especially at that time, <laughs> maybe less carefully than I, I do now, but I hope. But uh, I just remember thinking, oh, I just love to live this carefully. 
And I think maybe that was an aspect of that quality of contentment. And it, it wasn't, I wasn't having like a really yuckety yuck good time or, you know, in some blissful state, I was just a living being, <laughs> nothing special. And it just struck me so much. I didn't think I'd ever felt that, that content before. So independent of what was going on in, in many ways. And so then we might think of actually developing the skill, <laughs> practicing contentment. Is that possible? Maybe to, to think of it that way. You know, maybe we could ask the question in moments, what, what would it take for me to be content with the way it is right now? Let's try, being, let's try practicing contentment for a moment. Just looking to see what's it like right now. Can I be content with these conditions, with this body, this mind, just as it is, with the ache in my hip? And the pulsing in my head and the wondering and this confusion. Is contentment possible right now? Just like this. Or perhaps at some time asking the question, what would it take for me to feel contentment? What could I let go of? What wishes or preferences or beliefs or expectations could I release in this moment? And we sometimes think that this movement towards greater simplicity, contentment with less, you could say, this kind of renunciation that Don spoke about so beautifully and, and Monica also talking about, um, you know, this way that we, we need to be careful that we don't see this renunciation or this movement towards simplicity or or that there's some something in this path that um, that is telling us that we need to turn away from beauty or pleasant experiences as though that is is a recipe for clinging and so we should avoid that you know we can make the mistake of thinking that turning away from beauty and pleasant feelings and pleasant experiences is is a, a skillful way to to work with the energy of craving, and perhaps in moments that could have some value. But we need to be careful. This is from uh, Ajahn Sumedho. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that one shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should always contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful person, you should contemplate them as a rotting corpse. (laughs) 
this may have a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. (laughs) It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then to downright repulsive. One actually finds a joy in goodness and beauty in the people around or in the nature around. Once you have insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. So we need to be really careful that we don't turn away in this way because it's not only a misunderstanding of renunciation, but we can actually actually condition uh, bitter brittleness and, and hardness in our hearts. And as, as has been said, you know, the Buddha acknowledged that there is happiness that arises from the enjoyment of worldly pleasures and pleasant sense contacts and uh, the beauty that we find. This is part of life. And the suggestion that we, we acknowledge this and open to this, there in the Buddha's words. And the Buddha also says, this pleasure is limited. It's real, but it has limitations. And as we've been saying over and over, it's the energy of grasping and craving in the mind that is the source of our suffering, the root cause of suffering, not anything inherent in beauty and pleasant feelings or in the objects of our desires. But the Buddha, as, as uh, I think Don said, reading uh, some verse, some lines from the Dhammapada, that the Buddha s- offers us a chance to make a trade, to exchange a lesser happiness for a greater happiness. Tanisaro Bhikkhu says it like says it's like trading candy for gold. An intelligent sacrifice is any in which you'd gain a greater happiness by letting go of a lesser one. In the same way, you'd give up a bag of candy if offered a pound of gold in exchange. In other words, it's like a profitable trade. This analogy is an ancient one in the Buddhist tradition. One of the Buddha's disciples once said, I'll make a trade, aging for the ageless, burning for the unbound, for the highest peace, the unexcelled safety from bondage. Most of the time we want, we want to keep the candy and get the gold because we don't really trust it. And we know at least candy is sweet and tastes good. And even if that pleasure is fleeting, we're not sure about the gold. So we're not turning away from these happinesses in our lives, but we understand them for what they are. And we don't ask them to to provide that which they are incapable of ever providing. We enjoy them and we know that it's limited and that there is a greater, deeper happiness. We're going to make that trade. It's a good trade. It's a good deal. So I think I'll stop here tonight. Didn't get quite as far as I, in fact, quite a bit not as far as I thought I would. So maybe this will be two and a half talks or something. We'll see. 
So uh, let's just sit quietly together for a few minutes. Maybe sense into the possibility of simple contentment just now, just like this. Thank you for listening this evening, for your kind attention. There's time for walking, as you know, or standing. Is the standing, it's maybe too cool for the standing sangha to meet, but maybe not. And um, yeah, we'll chant this beautiful metta sutta this evening. If you have energy, please be welcome to come at nine. <laughs> 